Welcome to the Church Pulse Weekly Podcast, featuring leadership author and podcaster, Carrie Newhoff, and Barna President, David Kinneman. This podcast delivers unprecedented insights every week into how church leaders are navigating constant change in an era of disruption and discusses new digital tools to help you stay connected in real time to the people in your church. And now, your hosts, Carrie Newhoff and David Kinneman. Welcome to Church Pulse Weekly. It's so good to have you joining us. For those of you who are watching live, those of you joining uh, via podcast, uh, it's just so good to be with you in the midst of this continuing uh, disruption that we're in the midst of. And I'm joined by David Kinneman. He is the president of the Barna Group. David, good to see you. You too, Carrie. How are you doing? I'm doing great, uh, all things considered. In the middle of, uh, well, book deadline and lots of other things going on, I, I think I'm going to make it. How about you? Uh, yeah, I'm doing okay. Uh, I feel like yeah. we're, we're, it feels like the disruption is now uh, such that we've found our sea legs for it as a as a leader, mm-hmm. and you know, sort of just my personal rhythms. Um, but it's definitely one of those things that it still doesn't feel quite like it was uh, before uh, before COVID. No, and I think that's sort of been the big aha over the last month or two is wow, this really doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon that we may be living with instability and some fragility uh, for quite a while. So that's why I'm excited that we can look at this. And it's so funny when you look at the evolution of uh, Church Pulse Weekly, you know, those first few episodes, it was everything was changing every day. There was the latest data and we're still collecting data, but it seems like we're all kind of trying to figure out how to settle in for a much longer Hall than any of us want, expected, or are comfortable with, but but here we are, and so I'm really glad we get to have these conversations. And so today, really excited to have Andy Crouch with us. We'll bring him on in a minute, but I want to get to some data. There was some um, some material that really caught your attention. Just some uh, not like immediate, as in last minute trends, but some things that have been developing around technology and leaders. We've we've all seen that leaders are zoomed out, right? And here we are on Zoom shooting this yet once again. But what are we learning about leaders in technology, David? Well, what's been interesting, we wanted to, for this episode, take a, uh, an, a kind of a macro view of some of the trends we've been seeing now over five, almost six months. And uh, I think there's some really interesting sort of mega themes that are emerging. I, I spent some time going through all the data we've been collecting, uh, thousands upon thousands of interviews with church leaders, hundreds of thousands of interviews with congregants over the last six months. So it's been really a privilege to have our finger on the pulse of people's, you know, sort of thoughts and attitudes. So first, I wanted to talk about the fact that we're, we're seeing this disruption really hit pastors hard in terms of their confidence and their calling. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the emotional bandwidth that, I mean, so many people are in sort of an almost state of meltdown, pa- parents whose kids have gone back to school now and are having to homeschool or, you know, oversee their kids' education in new ways. Um, lots of different industries are changed, but the, the role of pastoring have, has changed very significantly. We see a lot of that in the data. And then we also see... You, you mean, can, can I just interject? It's almost like, I didn't sign up for this, right? Like, this is not why I got into ministry. Is that what you're, you're getting at? Exactly. And so many different ways that we're seeing the emotions of pastors say they're exhausted. They've been trying to be innovative. They're they're not made for digital ministry. They're made right. for in-person ministry. Uh, and so some of the ways that, you know, they're, they're feeling stretched and worn out and, and then facing, you know, what, what looks like many more months and beyond of, you know, sort of disruptions related to their church. 
And that gets into a second category of findings. Not only are leaders personally impacted by this, uh, but their churches are impacted in, ma- in major ways. Um, and we're going to be talking to Andy Crouch a little about his early prediction of how disruptive this might look like. So I wanted to kind of frame why we're seeing in the data that some of these disruptions really are significant, creating sort of long-term sort of change in the way local congregations work. So first, financially, and just sort of in terms of the sustainability of congregations, um, only 58%, only 58% of pastors say they uh, believe they're very confident they will survive in the coming year, uh, year and a half. Only 58. That's the lowest percentage we've seen in our tracking. So it's, it's um, you know, almost four out of 10 churches are sort of less than very confident about that. And that's been- They're st- on the bubble. They would say subjectively, we're kind of on the bubble. Right. And that, that's been steadily going down. So, you know, we're, we're actually predicting that between one in five and one in three churches over the next three years will go out of business as a result of this. A lot of the smaller churches, Man. a lot of the, the, the sort of economically challenged churches, um, those that just weren't yeah. built for this kind of environment. Um, and, you know, small churches and really large churches will probably find a way through or very, very small churches, but a lot of the mid-sized churches, a lot of the urban churches, a lot of the under-resourced churches, uh, a lot of the, 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 the mainline or de- de- sort of denominationally, you know, sort of a lot of, a lot of, con- a lot of congregations and denominations are getting older already. Um, yeah. And so we're seeing a lot of those, those groups sort of facing, you know, tough times at the we same should- time. Yeah, yeah. Time you're seeing a, a huge number of churches in um, in more innovative spaces that are growing. It's almost like they were perfectly positioned uh, to take advantage of digital, uh, pr- primarily digital or exclusively digital ministry. Um, and so it's a really interesting sort of the rich are getting richer, and and those churches that were 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 really not positioned to do ministry in this current digital age are are really struggling. Which is exactly what's happening in the marketplace. I mean, you know, you look at there are some companies that are having colossally great years, and others that are just going out of business. It'd be really interesting, maybe as a future research point, to look at what's happening to church plants. I keep thinking of the church planter who was going a lot, like I'm texting one right now in our country. And, you know, he's still going ahead with a launch, but you're pretty much doing digital launches. And yeah, or even you launched a year ago. It's always fragile. Like, how are they doing? We, we be, be good to, to click on that one week, maybe even have some guests in to talk about the dynamics. Let's definitely do that. I like that idea a lot. And, um, you know, so so it's been really interesting some of the more fundamental shifts that we saw from the early days of our tracking, I just want to bring back up to hear Andy talk a little bit about him and weigh in on these. Um, you know, in the early days, most pastors thought that the pandemic would be really great for spirituality and spiritual growth and for the growth of their congregation. So not only has that changed, but we're really seeing a, a majority of pastors now saying they think that either their congregation's spirituality is going to decline or stay the same. But a a much larger percentage of people are now saying they think that the people in their congregation, that their spiritual lives are not going to be the same that they were when when they come back. Um, It's almost like the habit-forming nature of this pandemic and and the psychological disruptions that are occurring, uh, people are starting to to sort of see that this is going to last. Um, and And then, you know, on a very practical matter, we've been tracking this right along, you know, in the first month or two, hardly anybody expected uh, that they would not be back to regular worship by midsummer. But over the course of the summer and now here in, in the early sort of late, late summer and early fall, 
um, we're seeing that more than more than one out of five churches say there's no way they're going to be back to, to worship before um, uh, b- before next year. And so each week that we're tracking that, that number is getting higher and higher and higher as people are sort of just calling the question, like we're just going to go ahead and cancel <laughs> cancel church or at least uh, in-person church. Yeah, yeah, the in-person worship. But, you know, that gets into the whole uh, resi- resiliency question because I remember that question, which you've asked multiple times. At the beginning, if you had said in May, hey, we won't be gathering again physically till 2022, I'm not sure anybody would have bought that. Or 2021, I should say. I don't... I think any would have, that wasn't even in the back of our mind. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah. And that gets to the mental stress of an ongoing disruption crisis. So I think we're seeing, and this is just an overview of a few of the things. You can see more of this kind of thing at Barna.com and at Barna Access, uh, our new subscription service. But um, this gets to some of the kinds of disruption that we're seeing. The last point I wanted to to raise in terms of the data, uh, brand new, we haven't talked about this before. Um, is we ask pastors, how concerned are you about increasing screen time uh, for teenagers during the pandemic? And 34% said very, and 51% said somewhat. So a total of 85% of pastors are saying, I'm, I'm, I'm very or somewhat concerned about screen time and the next generation. And then uh, you contrast that uh, with, does your church have a specific plan in place for teaching young people in your congregation to handle screens and digital content and only 14% of pastors said yes. Now, as we even double-click on that, that's probably an overestimate. One, uh, it's about one in seven uh, churches who say yes. What's my strategy? I talked about it once, so pretty sure. <laughs> I thought about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so we're planning to plan for that. But um, but 14% of pastors say, and, and again, one of the things you learn in a lot of years of social research with, with Christian leaders and church leaders is, is they're almost always the first to say, we have thought about that, we're planning on it, we're working on it. You know, it's like that 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 effervescent optimism that is now starting to really crumble a bit in the light of, of coronavirus and sort of they just can't find their sea legs, as we, as we sort of said earlier. Um, but the fact that only 14% are saying, yes, we have a plan to try to help this next generation deal with what, you know, for, for, for everyone, things changed almost overnight when the, when the quarantine hit. But for next generation people, I've got two uh, kids in college, uh, one as a junior in, in high school, they're all going to school virtually. And so even for, you know, for them, like, you know, they're just like in a, in a really, really tough spot in terms of how our church and the churches that they're a part of in their, in their uh, college community have, have shown up or not shown up to support them in this, in this journey. And um, so it's part of what we really, and, and Andy Crouch and, and Barna Group have had the privilege of working on a project called the TechWise Family. We've got more stuff we want to talk about in this podcast about that whole theme. But the church showing up on behalf of especially younger people and parents who are, who are dealing with, you know, the, the Zoom fatigue and like life just sort of switched online uh, as much as it already was before the pandemic uh, to, to just like, you know, like always on. Um, it feels to me like churches are sort of lacking in their preparation to try to help families and young people go through the motions of being faithful in terms of screen use and, and technology today. Uh, a huge and, and a great opportunity for the church to show up and, and sort of show a better way. And so that's what we're excited to talk about with Andy Krauss today. Well, let's bring Andy on. Andy, uh, we're so glad to have you join us. Andy is the partner for Theology and Practice at Praxis. He is also the author of multiple books, as well as the uh, joint project with Barna on the TechWise family. And he's the former executive editor of Christianity Today. Welcome, Andy. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you guys. 
Ah, it's, it's great to have you. So we get to talk about a couple of things that are driving leaders crazy. Number one, the prolonged <laughs> nature of this crisis, which is what I want to start with. And then we are going to talk about the impact of technology on leaders, on families, on, on kids, which you have a lot of expertise in. But before we dive into an article that you wrote back in March, I want to say, do you have anything you want to surf off of that David just shared? Oh, man. Uh, I was waiting for the good news, David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where's the good yeah. survey research? Uh, I, I was just really struck. Like, we need to give ourselves permission to say this. I don't know. Maybe people feel like they have permission. But this is hard, hard, hard. It's not just acutely hard. It's chronically hard. I think um, North Americans, maybe generally, I think the church, maybe specifically, we're actually pretty good at acute situations, like, you know, even highly acute, like someone's kid gets cancer, you know, the, the, the church, the community will mobilize, a hurricane comes through, whole cities will like rearrange themselves to serve their neighbors. But we're not good at chronic. Uh, mm. Your child is born with a lifetime, uh, you know, condition that will never, that, you know, barring some utter miracle will never change. Is the church ready to support you for 50 years with that child? Uh, you know, climate change is happening. Are we able to handle that as a society? Um, my, uh, my friend Tish Warren talks about the difference between, I think the word she uses is suffering and affliction. And we actually know how to comfort people in their suffering, but affliction is like suffering that is not going to be resolved anytime soon. And we are not very good with affliction. And I just was struck, David, at what you were sharing, that in a way we're entering into a, a, a season of affliction that is a really different kind of challenge, even from the suffering that we all already have been through. Yeah, that's, mm. that's well said. How, do you, um, how would you help pastors who, uh, even in the midst of some of the tough news and every week we sort of, it's like... Uh, uh, t- tuning into the parade of horribles with the with the data because it's been hard to 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 you know hear from leaders and at the same time they have been responding with innovation and and you know biblical yeah. optimism and hope. Um, what would be one way that you think uh, the church could be prepared and leaders could be prepared for m- more of a, a chronic sort of set of conditions as we sort of navigate this future? Well. Something really interesting happened for me this summer. Uh, I follow a, a morning prayer service put out by the Trinity Mission in Texas, and uh, they, they follow a lectionary that is a pattern of readings that takes you through the whole Bible in the course of a couple of years. And this summer was Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And um, I, I mean, I have to admit, I, I've read Jeremiah quite a bit. I have not read Ezekiel very much because it's weird. <laughs> He gets weird in the middle, really does. It's like, if you like numbers, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. But um, the, the exilic prophets, the, the, specifically the prophets who are, who are there at the moment that Israel is coming to terms with the fact that Babylon is not going away, all their young, anyone, anyone who's young, promising, has any capability, has been carted off to be re-educated. It's basically, an, uh, it's attempted cultural genocide. This is the way ancient Near, Near Eastern empires worked. And here are Jeremiah and then Ezekiel giving this unbelievably rich, n- no holds barred, like prophetic critique of Israel, but also incredible hope. And you'll flip back and forth between those in even a single chapter sometimes. So I think rereading um, those prophets who realized it's going to be generations 
before God acts to bring his people back to the land. And yet there's something faithful for us to do. Uh, that's the deepest well we've got to go to uh, right now. Hmm. And I think there's uh, something so interesting. I've found so much resonance through my 25 years of history and reading the prophets and something uh, in our work here at Barna of trying to tell the church the truth about itself and about the condition of culture and about yeah. the, the challenges that we face. And uh, uh, it, it, for, for me, at least professionally, it's been professionally and personally been a place that I've found a lot of, a lot of uh, deep resonance because as we go through challenging times like this, it's like, no, this is actually part of the human story. Things don't yes. always go up and to the right. And so yes. we as people of God have to be prepared for the good times, and the bad times and the faith in exile and the other kinds of things that are just so true of our experience. So how does the church thrive in exile? Not just when things are going yep. great. So well, well said. No, I think it's a good point. We're people of before, middle, after, and uh, the after might not be coming as quickly as possible, which takes me, Andy. So think about when the world changed. Most of us would talk that that was that week of like March 9th to 15th that all turned on a dime. On March 20th, you co-authored an article, and I want to quote at some length, because rereading this, preparing for this interview, I'm like, wow. <laughs> the novel coronavirus is not just something for leaders to, quote, get through for a few days or weeks. Instead, we need to treat COVID-19 as an economic and cultural blizzard, winter, and beginning of a, quote, little ice age, a once-in-a-lifetime change that is likely to affect our lives and organizations for years close quotes. So I think, Andy, that was a little bit prophetic. Okay, we're like 10 days into this and you're writing about this. And five or six months later, I think leaders are still struggling with the reality that, yeah, like we talked about so far in this episode, this is actually not going away right away. Um, any idea why so many leaders are struggling with the idea that this could be a blizzard or a little ice age. It's not, or sorry, uh, more than just yeah, a blizzard more of a is winter, what I'm trying to say. Thank age. you. Yeah. Why they're still struggling with it. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it speaks to the power of culture. Um, there's a lot of different ways to define culture, but, but one way to define it, I guess, is the things you don't have to think about, the things you can do without thinking. So we all share the English language. We don't have to think. We, we didn't even have a conversation at the beginning, like what language should we have this uh, podcast in? And in <laughs> yeah, many parts of the world, you point. would. You'd be like, are we in Zulu today? Are we in Swahili or whatever? Um, and culture is all the things you can take for granted. And it's, it's incredibly cognitively efficient because I don't have to learn a whole new set, a whole new stack, we could say in computer science terms of skills and capacities. And, and, uh, it allows you to act with a sense of freedom in the world. What this crisis, or more than a crisis, what this episode and change of seasons in a way is doing is it's taking away all the things that we already know how to do. And, and then you're left rebuilding absolutely from the ground up. Like, you know, okay, we know how to put on a service in our sanctuary. Can we just videotape that and send it to our congregation? And that works for three or four weeks. But how do we actually worship for the next maybe 12 to 18 months without being able to gather? It's not going to be a, a webcam pointed at the pulpit in the sanctuary. And, and this requires a level of flexibility and, and it imposes a cognitive cost that is really hard to pay when you're paying that in every single aspect of your life, not just your ministry, but your neighborhood, your kids schooling, your, you know, all these things. 
So I think we're resistant to the idea that it's more than a, a blip because of how much would have to change if it's really true that it's sticking around. So you think some of that might be a little bit of denial, just like if we can, like what what's under that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to blame anyone for. No, no, no. First of all, I, don't, I want to blame. I'm anyone. in denial about lots of things going on in my <laughs> life, so I'm I'm like yeah. I'm like a fellow journeyer here. I'm just curious, doctor. Right. Fill me no, in. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there is some of that, and it is also sequencing because we have to solve near near term problems first and there's a lot of near term problems to solve like early on it was will i have toilet paper next week then it became where will i get a haircut you know like there's just think about all the things you didn't have to think about um so part of it is people are just putting off reckoning with things that are too big for them to address today um i think i think also uh especially in the North American context, this is an optimistic culture. Like this is like a glass one fifth full culture and, and, and leaders in particular are rewarded for being optimistic. And there's a kind of, I'm not entirely, I don't think all the results of the, the COVID episode will be negative. So it's not pessimistic to say this is going to change everything. But it does imply some real disruption and pain, for sure. And I think we have not been rewarded as leaders for being, I mean, Jeremiah wasn't rewarded either, right? Leaders who actually bring up the big structural generational pain that is impending to a people, like that's not generally highly rewarded ever, you know. And Jeremiah gets thrown in a pit and various other things happen to him. And no one listens to him, by the way. He's and in his own time, he's not seen as an effective leader. Four four kings, I think, and none of them pay attention. So it's taking on a lot, and it especially has been in these first few months, to be the one who's willing to step out and say, This is actually going to be way harder and way longer and in a sense way worse than than you would like to think. And and now let's imagine how God's going to be present in that. That's a really challenging leadership role. So from the questions nobody really wants to know the answer to department, my next question is any sense on whether this is a winter or a little ice age? Any any sense? I mean, I rereading the article and uh uh, I would encourage people to uh, Google it. If they just Google your name and Ice Age, they're going to find it. Uh, or a really good movie for kids, but uh, they'll find that. Um, any sense on where this is heading? And, and underneath that is, how did you know this was not just going to be a blizzard? How did you even sense 10 days in that, oh my gosh, we're in this for a while? Yeah, I'll start with that. Because uh, I remember it really vividly. Um, my daughter's university had suddenly gone, you know, uh, asked all the students to leave, gone online. So I picked her up. That was a Saturday. That was Saturday, March 14th, I think. And Monday, uh, you mentioned March 20th is the day we published this piece. Monday at 3 a.m., I woke up lying next to my wife, and she was awake at that point. And I said, this is not the Spanish flu. This is the Great War. And uh, and people think it's 1918, but it's actually 1914 or 1916. Um, so everyone at that point was thinking about the Spanish flu, the last truly great global virus led pandemic. And that was a three year episode, right? 1918 to 1920 with a couple waves as we all, all are now very familiar with. And, uh, one of the things about the, the Spanish flu is 
actually, there's, it's amazing how little historical record there is of it. It's amazing how people talked about it afterwards, even though it took the lives of 100 million people, perhaps. I forget the exact number. Massive proportion of the world's population. But it, it was kind of a blip in the midst of a hugely traumatic uh, event for Western civilization, at least. And people just didn't talk about it, and they went on once it was done. The Great War which we in America learn in, in school as World War I, but in Europe still called the Great War, was the defining event of the 20th century. Uh, I don't think you can say anything else had the effect, even globally, even though it was a largely European conflict. Um, and that, of course, started with this seemingly uh, random and minor, I mean, not totally negligible, but just sort of a news item, the assassination of the arch the Archduke of uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And uh, and no one really thought there would even be a war. But uh, a few years later, uh, Europe was completely redrawn. It really is the end of Christian Europe. Um, it's the end of Christianity in Europe as an established reality. Uh, I mean, everything. And then World War II is just like an afterthought. <laughs> even though from an American perspective, it, it doesn't feel that way because we were much more involved in World War II. And it just struck me that morning, middle of the night, really. I was like, we're not thinking this way. We're thinking this is an epidemic, but this is actually a global realignment. And just like what happened after the Great War plus the Spanish flu was the primary consequences were actually economic. So you end up with the Roaring Twenties in America. You end up eventually with hyperinflation in Germany. That leads to the rise of National Socialism in Germany Germany to get the economy under control. Um, and I realized there are going to be economic consequences of this that we're going to be living with for at least a decade. So I actually wrote, woke up that morning, I went back to bed, slept fitfully, woke up, wrote my partners at Praxis a long note, and that was the seed of what became the article that you read four days later, because we realized we've got to think about this in much longer terms. And uh, yeah, is it a blizzard? No way. A blizzard is something that happens for a few days. Well, that's clearly not the case. Winter is, I don't know where I live. It's like three or four months. I mean, maybe in Canada, it's like <laughs> In a good months. year, it's four months. So yeah. <laughs> but still, like winter's a, an episode in a, in a rhythm, right? In California, and, it's just a, it's like maybe a weekend. 20 minutes? <laughs> Come on, David. <laughs> I think it's not in the 40s, you know, maybe. maybe oh, yeah. oh chilly. Get out your vest. Um, Ice Age is a, I mean, obviously, uh, the Ice Age has often lasted hundreds of years, and I, no one is predicting this per se will be like that. But then I think of an Ice Age, like winter is a sort of a, a moment in a seasonal, of seasonal variation that comes around every year. But an Ice Age is a change in the whole climate that, that alters life um, for a long time, let's say. And in the article, we said maybe two or three years minimum. Uh, I think now I would extend that. I think there are going to be meaningful effects from this. First of all, long after the epidemic is dealt with by herd immunity or vaccine or treatment, uh, the, the economic ramifications of this are going to be going on. And yeah, I think five years from now, will we say, woo, it's all done. Uh, and some things will be done, but in other ways, it will not be the same world, just like in the 1920s. It, was, it wasn't like, oh, good, we're back to 1915. No, it never, it, that, that Europe never reappeared. In that sense, I think this probably has some of those qualities. It's interesting, as somebody who's got a degree in history, you're right, you know, because you kind of know life as you know it. I was born in the 60s, and 
kind of watch the, you know, the rise of Western prosperity and sort of the American empire really sort of set in. And you don't really expect to see that change in your lifetime. But being a student of history, you realize like in the 19th century, you know, it was Britain who was the superpower and not so much after the world wars and then the rise of America. And you just don't expect that in your lifetime. And yet here we are. What are some of the shifts right now that you are paying attention to? Like if leaders were saying, okay, Andy, I buy it, that this is not a blip. But like, what's, what's changing? What should I be looking at? Yeah, maybe a way to add to that is like, what would be some of the things you might imagine would be very different in five years as a result? Uh, so you could either yeah. think about what's a year from now or what's five years. Yeah. What, are, what are ways, signposts along the way to a changed world? Yeah. It's a great question. <laughs> it is a great question. And my crystal ball gets very cloudy at moments yeah. like this. Uh, I, here's the number one thing I'm, I'm paying attention to. I don't have a solution for it, but I think some people will. And solving this will be maybe the greatest act of leadership in our, in our time. Uh, I don't pretend I'll be the one to do it. We, I think what we're seeing um, is, is incredibly rapidly shrinking circles of trust. Mm. Who, whom do you trust in your life to, uh, to know you? First of all, just to know who you are. Uh, I don't think you can really trust someone you don't know. You can vicariously trust people maybe. Uh, whom do you trust to care for you? Uh, whom do you trust enough to have conflict with them? Um, so just to pause on that, there's a whole genre in the last 10 years. So listen, very few trends come out of nowhere, uh, even when it's a, a novel event that happens. Novel events accelerate certain existing features of the environment. So think about the last 10 years, this genre of articles that come out around American Thanksgiving that tell you how to go and, and have dinner with your racist relatives, right? Or, or maybe slightly less. That's a little... That's maybe a little unfair. The, your relatives who really see the world politically differently from you and you think they're racist and they probably yeah. are. <laughs> right? Now, this, first of all, this, uh, there, I don't remember anything like that when I was 20 years old. But every, you know, 25-year-old today has read some blog post or pop, piece of popular journalism about how to handle the incredible awkwardness of your Fox News watching uncle. So, it used to be you'd go home for Thanksgiving. Those were not always happy, simple gatherings. Every family has tons of conflict. But the idea that it would be so fraught that you'd need to like gird yourself and prepare just to get through Thanksgiving, right? Is It's really a change. And I think that more broadly what we're seeing is as, as our world shrinks, uh, at least for the moment, thanks to distancing and all that, the number of people we even have enough interaction with to cross the threshold of trust is reduced. And then we're seeing so many people in very narrow channels. We're seeing them in very narrow kind of little screens and little windows. And it's really hard to grow to trust someone in that environment that I just think across the board, we, we have fewer people we trust. And also the emotional energy of keeping up relationships is just higher. And, and so we're, hmm. we're shrinking the circle we engage with in an ongoing way. Now, human societies run on trust. Institutions run on trust. Churches run on trust. And right now, we are basically spending the trust we accumulated before the circumstances changed. How do we actually build trust in this new environment? How do I add to my circle and add to my store of trust 
in this time when all the, all the ways I would have done that, you know, going out for a, a drink, uh, meeting for coffee, you know, whatever, when many of those things are not available. Whoever figures out how to solve that question, <laughs> how you actually build like interconnecting networks of trust in this environment will have solved the big leadership challenge of our time. Well, and just to underscore that, I mean, you said something that kind of made my stomach sink, but who do I trust enough to have conflict with? We have conflict about people. We are losing the art of having conflict with people and staying in relationship. Completely, because, I mean, it used to be not unusual. This this varied by kind of subculture and regional culture and so forth, but not unusual to go to Thanksgiving and have huge arguments about politics and all kinds of things. And then everyone sat down and had Thanksgiving. But you love and, each other and that's Uncle Joe. Yeah. So whatever, but, right? So so that's, yeah, that's really, I'm, I'm, I think what you raised there is really important. Like it's not so much the existence, it's not the existence of difference or disagreement. It's that I, now I don't even, now I'm going in with an avoidance strategy Rather than oh yeah, there will be conflict. We'll we'll argue about all kinds. <laughs> I of can't things. be in the same room with you because I don't hold the same view as you. Yeah, that's where we've kind of moved. And and I think you're right. That probably has been an accelerated tendency in COVID from conspiracy theories online yes. to beyond that. Um, let's talk a little bit about digital fatigue if we can pivot a bit yeah. because we've heard um, I've heard so many like we hear from thousands of pastors in our data. Uh, but also just anecdotally in comments they leave on blogs and social media and so on. And what I'm hearing again and again is I'm just tired of online church. I don't think it works. I'm tired of Zoom. I'm dead to Zoom. I'm exhausted with being online. People just want real-time, you know, connection back. And, you know, as I think, the internet isn't going away anytime soon. The reason you're listening to this or watching this show is thanks to the internet. And you're probably going to scope out the next restaurant you go to via an app on your phone, right? (laughs) And so you're going to check out Yelp or whatever you're going to do. So we live these digital lives, uh, but people are really slamming technology right now. I'd love for you to speak on that for a minute. Just tell us a little bit about what you're seeing and what you think is under that. Well, I mean, mostly I think we are finding out in a new way, uh, how would I put it, how bad this stuff really is for us. And I mostly think you're right to be tired. <laughs> and um, I, I, I also agree it's not going away for lots of reasons, for practical reasons, but also because there are genuine values uh, and genuine extension of human capacities that technology makes possible. But the the shadow side is really related to design decisions that were made at the dawn of the technological era to ignore the fact that we have bodies. (laughs) So we built interfaces that require us to sit still because leisure, the sitting still seems like, like the idea that I can do my job and sit still to someone in 1900 would seem like, oh, you have the most amazing magical life. All you do is push buttons and watch things on a screen, right? Well, in fact, this is terrible for human beings because human beings are heart, soul, mind, strength complexes. And and what, what we call technology was developed without attention to that. So we could have developed ways, um, uh, we could have developed much better ways to, to uh, telecommunicate while walking, for example. Now, we have affordances for that. Like I have headphones. Whenever I talk one-on-one with someone, I go for a walk now. Uh, I used to do lots of one-on-one Zooms. I I basically don't do any now. 
because I need every moment I can in conversation with a single other person, at least, to be out in nature, to be uh, moving. Uh, Jesus did most of his life walking with people. Um, So we're really running into the the poor design of the modern technological imagination, um, which we, I really think we could have done things differently and we still can, but for the moment we're kind of, we're stuck, right? uh, With what we've got. Um, So I don't know, maybe that's my main thought that that the fatigue you're feeling is absolutely must be attended to. And I'll also say we're recording this the day after I got back from two weeks. Uh, I take two weeks every year, have done for 15 years away from almost all screens. Now, I'm not going to pretend I don't check the weather. And uh, I, re- I read the Wall Street Journal every day when I'm on, on vacation. It's the paper I, I read for news. Um, but I don't read email. I don't do Zoom. I don't do meetings. And, and I was just out biking and hiking in, in Maine um, for two weeks. And it was so good for my heart, soul, mind, and strength. <laughs> and uh, I just think we've got to rebuild into our lives the rhythms of getting out into the world as best as we can uh, and, and, and using these technologies very sp- as sparingly as we can uh, because we're not, we're not made for this. <laughs> what would you say to then about online church? So, uh, you know, the percentages go up and down, but there's a meaningful percentage, let's say 30 or 40% that still cannot meet yeah. in person. And those that are regathering in person are discovering attendance levels that are disappointingly low compared to what they had. Yeah. Um, how would you advise that we handle that dichotomy? And a, a growing number of leaders who are leading hybrid teams or remote teams. It's like, right. we can't even gather in person. So here we are in this Zoom life and phone life. And what do we do? So a couple thoughts. Well, and the first is there's better Zoom and worse worse Zoom. <laughs> and there's better Zoom events and worse Zoom events. And uh, so better Zoom is small group Zoom. So basically um, what is rewarding, we as human beings, we are interpersonal beings. Like to be a person is to be intersubjective. I find out who I am through you. Um, and uh, even when I'm alone, I'm recreating uh, intersubjectivity, whether I'm addressing God, whether I'm... Uh, I, I often find myself having conversations with people who aren't there. Maybe it's just me, but I don't think so. Uh, or, or I kind of construct myself as a, as a fellow subject. But we need other subjects to tell us who we are. And how do you do that? Well, you do it through, your, your, through the way you attend to me. And you attend to me through your gaze. You attend to me through the way you listen. You attend in the way, the tone and words you use to respond. The problem is that the more uh, human beings I have to attend to simultaneously, the less effect my, uh, effective my attention is, right? In, it, when we're pr- present in the flesh the way we were created to be, and we will be again one day, this epidemic isn't going to last forever, at least not in the current phase, um, uh, the maximum number you can kind of fully attend to in the way we need as human subjects, I think is about 12 So I think a room of 12 can actually sense when someone in the room is feeling uncomfortable. They sense when someone in the room is kind of checking out or bored or, you know, uh, whatever, or when someone's happy and engaged and excited, even if they're not saying it, we've got these nonverbal channels, right? Uh, You get over 12 in the flesh and you lose your ability to attend in that way. You just, you can't keep track and you can't even, uh, you hit about 20 and you can't even be sure everybody's in the room. Like somebody could walk out of the room and you wouldn't quite register it or could disappear and you wouldn't register it. 
online, that number shrinks. I think it shrinks down to about maybe four or five. That in this, we're using it right now. There's three of us visible to each other on the screen. I can actually pay attention to each of you and how you're responding to me. And it's life-giving, right? But if we put 15 of us in little boxes, I'm lost. I I can't pay attention to all those boxes. They can't pay attention to me. I know they can't pay attention to me. I can divert my gaze and check my email over here, you know. Um, So you've got to shrink the group. Um, That's good Zoom. I think good Zoom is two to five people. Hmm. And then there's good Zoom events, which can be done broadcast. You don't try to put all the little boxes on the screen. It doesn't, that doesn't help anybody. But instead, you just pay relentless attention to what at every moment serves this audience well, and how do we create rhythm and energy and changes of pace, and we ask them to break up into groups. It's stuff we're all experimenting with. And there are ways to actually do large group engagement that, that people report are quite satisfying. Hmm. Um, the problem is we're probably not experimenting enough and we're not willing enough to realize how limited this medium is and just figure out the handful of things we can use it for. Well, I was thinking, as you said that, that, um, I'm actually traveling this week and in, in Colorado. So just yesterday we, we hiked, uh, between Flatiron one and Flatiron two, which is near Hmm. Boulder. And, um, and I was thinking about my early days as a researcher and the disdain I held for people who said that they worship God when in nature, (laughs) And now uh, how wrong I was about that uh, idea. Uh, And and so there is something, you know, cathedral-like about visiting one of the national parks and and even just, you know, getting out to a a normal everyday city park. And I'm wondering, I'm I'm thinking about sort of this idea of hearing you talk about sort of, we could have designed our technology to be more kinetic and movement oriented and more outdoor oriented. In fact, we did some research years ago about making space for millennials who wanted to see the outside brought in and the inside brought out and more kind of transitional spaces in the architecture of church buildings, which might serve, which might've served churches now better if they had had built more outdoor sort of worship spaces. But I'm thinking about um, how some of your reflections on, you know, sort of, doing digital events where you're, where you're broadcasting and you have, you know, hey, we have a hundred, five, 500, 5,000 people watching, but now we're going to break up into smaller groups to discuss something. And that, that idea of some, some, some ways to improve upon maybe the digital worship experience. In addition to the sort of expectation, Hey, we actually want you to take this experience to the park and we're going to guide you through an, a, a time of worship outdoors. Mm. Um, wow. You know, so like, are there ways that we can be really creative even about, what we're expecting people to do as they, you know, sort of, I think there's an app sort of pray as you go, right? Is there, yes. a, yeah, yeah. Is there a way that we're, we're, um, we're, we're asking people to be moving as they're doing it rather than just sort of sedentary as they worship. Oh my gosh. That would be such a gift to people to, to actually give them structure and in a sense permission or guidance to actually be heart, soul, mind, strength creatures. I mean, we do this when we're in person, when, even the lowest church, like the, the least liturgical church, people stand at some point and, and often they're singing and they're moving. Well, that's, none of that's available to us. And, and part of the problem is when you try to recreate worship, but you're actually having people just sit on their couch you know, for some length of time, that's actually much less active than even our relatively passive, constrained experience of worship in a lot of uh, non-liturgical churches is. So I love the idea of uh, sending people outside. It's, such, it's so good. 
That's a really good idea. And I know that there's a few apps in Christianity that will focus you on that. But you know, you, you just, I love conversations like this because you're making me think about things I never think about. I wonder if that's why podcasting is so popular or one of the reasons it's so memorable. David and I have talked about it. Mm-hmm. You're getting a lot of feedback on this podcast. And one of my theories for a long time has been it's because you go with people where they live. You're in their car, you're yeah. mowing their lawn with them, you're on a bike ride, you're yeah. on a run, you're at the gym. And yet what that does is I always thought that creates a, a emotional connection. It's also great in terms of being able to double time. So I'm mowing the lawn yes, and sure. listening to this. But I also wonder if it's the actual movement itself, wow. which is real. Because it was Nietzsche who said, there is no thinking without walking. You yes. study great patterns in history. And you know Steve Jobs, very famous for if you really want to develop a new product. And I've, I've yeah. walked his neighborhood where he used to live just because I thought, you know, I read the biography like everyone else. And I'm like, <laughs> I think this would be fun. And we're walking down the street where like the iPhone was invented and, and his best ideas came from those walks. And I think that can yeah. be a very practical, counterintuitive charge to church leaders to say, hey, start thinking about that. Um, you know, and- I've got a son who's a very kinesthetic learner. And if mm. he's not moving, he's bored. Um, and he's an adult now. So I think, I think we're all kinesthetic learners. I mean, obviously on a spectrum to some extent, but you know, yeah. today I had uh, talk about zoom fatigue. I, I had a, a meeting, a board meeting for four hours on zoom and I had a half hour break before talking with you guys, which we're doing now. And, um, every, every temptation of course was, Oh gosh, a lot of email has come in during that meeting. Uh, I, I can check off a bunch of to-do to lists in this half hour, right? And instead, I had the presence of mind to make myself a peanut butter sandwich and take it outside. Now, I don't live in a national park. I live in a perfectly nice little town, but it's not a national park. It's hot and humid today. It's not the kind of day I want to be outside in normally, uh, like in my ideal world. But I tell you, I, I ate this uh, English muffin with peanut butter just walking around the perimeter of my house in the hot, humid air, uh, and it was so much better than if I had tried to cram in another 30 minutes of the screen. Now, I still have to answer those emails eventually. Mm. But we've got to like have the presence of mind and sense the presence of body to realize if I'm going to invest time in the screen, I've got to invest time in the three-dimensional world so that I can be present to you for this time and have the energy for it when, when it's the way that we have to communicate. You know, that makes me think about one of the great ways that uh, churches could show up on behalf of children, teenagers, young adults, especially who are in school and who are doing either digital or hybrid school, or even if they're back to full-time school, there's a lot of anxiety in this generation that's, that's been building. As you sort of said, there's some signposts, yeah. uh, like the Thanksgiving meal that you mentioned. There's some signposts about anxiety, life in the anxious age that we're building prior to COVID but have been sort of switched to, to hyperdrive. So that just it goes to 11, you know, uh, for this generation. You kind of see the sort of layer upon layer, job disruption, sort of educational disruption, just the sort of the, the learning styles of going to class and coming from class. So I wonder if there is something about um, uh, the opportunities to give, give students a sense of buffer and margin and movement mm. in their lives mm. to help, to help, detoxify the anxiety that they're experiencing, which is, which I keep saying to my kids, like, it's totally normal that you're feeling pretty anxious about this school year. It's like, nobody's done this before in history. 
That's, and that's okay. So, you know, like we're, I bought my kids bikes about a month ago, partly, uh, partly just to get them, you know, mo- moving together and, you know, going through uh, some, some stuff together. But I wonder whether churches could think creatively about that kind of movement based discipleship. I love it. I love it. Hmm. Well, um, I love conversations like this, Andy, and it's been so helpful, but uh, you got thousands of church leaders listening who are like, I love this. This is like reframed it, made me rethink the problem in new ways. Can you give me one or two things I can do like right now that'll help me (laughs) get through any practical strategies that you're like, oh man, I think this could be a best practice if you did X, anything come to mind that way? Oh gosh. I love your idea of getting away because I've done that for years. I've practiced like the outside office. I'm in my indoor office, but you want to know where I am most days when the weather's nice? I'm in my backyard writing, yeah. thinking, dreaming, imagining, I, taking meetings, uh, going for walks. I'm going to hop on my bike. So I oh. think you're right. You can die by screen. And I'm an advocate of digital ministry, digital church, and digital companies, but you can mm. die that way too. Yeah. So I mean, you know, I would share the the most transformative thing I've done in the last at least five years, um, maybe in the last decade, was about five years ago, four years ago. I realized I was getting up in the morning, going downstairs to the kitchen, making tea, and, and picking up my phone. I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only person for whom this was the default move. And I I realized there's got to be a better thing to do first thing in the morning than that. So I've not given up my tea. Uh, That that addiction remains firmly entrenched in my life. And And I applaud (laughs) you for that. Thank you. That that Mm -hmm. idol is not going anywhere. Um, But I decided I'm you know I'm going to make my tea and I'm just going to walk out my front door every day first before I look at a screen. I'm going to step out into the natural world, and. I, it is, it's almost embarrassing how spiritually powerful this discipline has been because I think it reflects like what a spiritual, like what, a, what, a, what little it takes to have an incredible spiritual effect on me. That's how kind of immature I am. But to just this practice of walking out the front door, tea in hand, and some days it's beautiful, some days it's really humid, sometimes it's raining, you know, it can be winter, it's snowing. But I stand out there, sometimes just for 15 seconds, but often I'm kind of drawn in and I'll stay outside for a while. And just being a creature in creation, rather than what my phone encourages me to think of myself, which is a, as kind of the god of a little domain with my, my digital assistant ready to help you know me manage my domain and tell me what I need to know. And I step out and I'm just small and in the winter it's still dark and the stars are up there and the moon is there sometimes. And I actually know what phase of the moon it is now. I probably went years without that. But I'll tell you the, the, the deeper thing is in my early in my 20s, I decided the first thing I wanted to say in the morning was out loud was thank you, God, for this day. So I would wake up, I'd roll out of bed and say thank you, God, for this day. Sometime, I don't know exactly when, in my early 40s, I stopped saying that. And I think it's about the time that I started having ubiquitous screens to check in the morning. The first day that I tried this practice of going outside, I stepped out out of doors and almost involuntarily said, thank you, God, for this day. (laughs) Like that practice of gratitude, awareness, presence uh, was back. And it's back now. It's been back for a couple of years now. And... um, 
I, I think the most practical things we can do as leaders are not the like tricks we can pull out of our hat for our organizations or our, our ministries or whatever. It's the things we do that actually ground us in who we are and then release the creativity that's needed for the place and people that we're with. Because really, how can I possibly imagine all the different circumstances of everybody who listens to this? I, I can't. And so I, there's no thing practical enough for everybody except to take on the few little things that will actually help you be like who you were made to be. And for me, this discipline of being outdoors first thing has been just ridiculously helpful. And I know it's been helpful to others uh, in, in ministry. Oh, I've, I've been doing a little bit of research on that and I can attest to that. At first I thought I was weird, but, uh, and I'm not even like an outdoorsman, you know what I mean? So to yeah, speak, yeah. like I don't go out and hunt things or whatever, but. I'm just imagining uh, the uh, discovery channel about you, you and me being like sur- survivor men and how quickly. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's a very short show. It'd be a one episode show. <laughs> yeah, no. I'd be on for the first eight seconds. And then what happened to him? I thought there was another guy in the show. David may outrun the bear. Uh, (laughs) Only has to beat one other person. Well, listen. Mushrooms and say, I think these are going to be edible. (laughs) (laughs) Someone had to figure out they weren't, right? Might as well be you. So, uh, (laughs) hey, uh, I would love to, you guys have worked on a project together uh, called the TechWise Family, and you got a whole suite of things coming out. As we wrap up today, can you just uh, let leaders know what's available and what you've been working so hard on? Because I think this is resonating with a lot of people. And if you're going to have a digital life moving forward, you better have a non-digital life to back it up. So uh, Mm. talk a little bit about uh, your TechWise work that you've been doing. Well, I'll take the first stab at that and say, when we heard Andy talk about some of his rhythms as a family and as a leader related to technology a number of years ago, we, we, uh, we thought there ought to be a, a book on that and, and that we'd love to be at, at Barna Partner and sort of talking about technology and its impact on people. It's been a, a thing that I've been so interested in personally as a researcher, the impact of the screen age on Gen Z and what I call digital Babylon and, and, and now this sort of like tech-wise theme that... Andy was so gracious to write uh, alongside us. And uh, so Andy, I'd love to have you talk about both your, your heart behind that book and then, and then preview people on Amy's new project. And then I'll say a little bit more about uh, uh, the, the TechWise courses uh, maybe to wrap up. Yeah, gosh, I feel like one of the best decisions I ever made was to take David up on this invitation to write this little book, which I kind of fit in as a side project, to be totally honest. But I was like, no, this is worth trying to write about. And our family had tried to develop healthy rhythms. So the challenge was to write in a way that would give people a sense of hope and zero sense of guilt and a sense of possibility and no sense of shame about all the ways that technology comes into our lives as families. And um, and so it's been really fun to see it make a difference uh, in w- way more ways than I imagined. Um, and one of, the, one of the fun things I did is have Amy, the uh, my daughter, one of our two kids, uh, write the foreword for the book just to give a, a kid's stamp of approval to say this actually works. <laughs> and, and I'm I'm happy that my family did these really weird things. Um, and that foreword was so good uh, that, that we realized maybe she should write a book. So that comes out this fall. It's called My TechWise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices. And it's mostly her book. And then I write little responses uh, at the end of every chapter to her. Um, and it's great. It's a, you know, she's just turned 20. So she wrote as a teenager. She's writing for teenagers. Uh, hope that kids and parents will read it together. So very excited about that coming out, um, later this fall and all the chances we'll have as father and daughter to talk about these things in different ways. 
Uh, and then this, uh, we also spent some time uh, recording just a, a set of video resources, which you can talk about more if you want, David, uh, you know, but just kind of giving some basic teaching on these subjects that churches could pick up and use. And I hope that, um, I hope we can start, I mean, I hope we can start a revolution, frankly, uh, not, not an Amish revolution, like not, not discarding, but really reframing and redesigning. Uh, and ultimately, I think I'm more and more feeling like we need a massive redesign of what we want technology to do for us and why. And I absolutely think we can see that kind of movement arise in our time. Well, we're just a hundred percent behind you and so grateful uh, to, to be partnered with you on that. And, and so for listeners, part of what we had envisioned was uh, that there would be a video uh, course for families. So the TechWise family will be a video course uh, and, uh, and, and then a, a TechWise church and TechWise team uh, courses as well. And uh, we, we really sort of feel like the book's been out about two and a half years now. Um, it's been, you know, v- very uh, successful commercially, so much so that we hear interesting stories coming back from readers and families. I heard one recently, Andy, of someone who said, um, uh, it was Dwayne Grobman who said that he came across someone who read the book as a family and they, went, they implemented all the changes. And then it was like their six or seven year old who, who at the dinner table was like, I hate that Andy Crouch, all these things that... I hate that Andy Crouch, but it had been so trans- transformational that the six-year-old had, had personalized you as the... Yes, I'm going to be known to a generation challenge. of children as the author of that red book my parents uh, read, and it, it uh, messed up my life, yes. <laughs> uh, so I think that's just a funny anecdote, but um, our hope is exactly as Andy, as Andy described, yeah. that there would be this sort of uh, counter-cultural sort of way of thinking about screens, even at a moment in our time and in human history when screens are more necessary than ever to do the things that we need to do. And so where do people find that? Um, all all that'll be available at Barna access. I'm sorry, Barna.com slash TechWise. There'll be tools that'll be available through the Barna access subscription for those uh, listeners who are subscribers. And then there'll be tools that'll be available uh, for parents and for schools and, and others uh, the, the TechWise family book, My TechWise Life, which will be coming out in November, and the TechWise courses, which are available now, barna.com slash TechWise. Well, I want to thank you both so much for today. Andy, it's been a joy. It's my first conversation with you, but it's been a yeah. rich one, and you've really made me think. Uh, David, as always, thank you so much. Hey, we'd love to hear from you. You can also go to churchpulseweekly.com, where we would love to have you participate in the pastor polls that we do Uh, And there's also free resources that are available for your whole church. So we love to serve you as leaders. We're back next time with a fresh episode. Thanks so much for watching and thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Church Pulse Weekly Podcast. Join us next week for more insights on navigating constant change in an era of disruption and how to stay connected to the people in your church.